Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we pray that through it this morning you would draw us deeper into your presence. Lord, um, use my, my mouth, my words, my, my thoughts, my preparation, my prayers for your glory to speak to your people and to encourage them. I pray that you would bring rays of light to the dark places of our hearts to lift us up and encourage us and to draw us closer to you. So bless this time, we pray in, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want you to turn to Luke 18. We're still going through Luke 18, and so that's where we're going to be this morning as well. And I want to start with a little bit ex- uh, uh, of an experiment. I'm going to put, don't do it yet, okay, but I'm going to put an image up on the screen. I don't want you to say anything out loud, but I want you to look at this image and tell me if you can see a number. Don't say it out loud, just put it in your head, okay? Go ahead, throw that up there. Do you see, do you see a number in this uh, image? Okay, now you can say it out loud. What number do you see? Okay, is there anyone in the room courageous enough to admit that they don't see a number? Someone, we got one over here, doesn't see the number. Okay, uh, it's okay. Neither my son, my eight-year-old son doesn't see the number either because he's colorblind. So he can't distinguish between certain shades of reds and green. Uh, and, it, you know, if he looked at this image, and actually I, I tested it on him, he was like, what are you talking about? What number? He, he can't see anything. So the, the way that I discovered this was a few years ago, he was pretty young, and I had these Lego snakes, and we were at my in-law's place, and the snakes were green, and the, they had this thick shag carpet that's red. And, uh, and he had dropped one of the snakes and he couldn't find it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The snake's right there. You can't see this snake. And then it turned into this really fun game where I would throw the snakes on the carpet and, and ask him to look, at, uh, look for them. And, and I thought it was hilarious because he'd be looking right at the snakes and absolutely unable to find them. And, uh, and I did this over and over and over again until my wife reminded me that I'm a grown-up and I shouldn't behave like a child. And I'm sure that my son will need therapy at some point in the future that will come up. But the point is this, seeing he couldn't see, looking right at these bright green snakes on this reddish carpet, he could not distinguish them. He could not see that they were there. His eyes were open and he was looking right at the object and yet he was blind to see that they were there. Now, The reason I bring this up is because I think, interestingly, this is the same diagnosis that Jesus gives to so many people as he travels throughout Israel, that although they have eyes to see, they fail to see. Looking into the face of Jesus, the very face of God, with their physical eyes, they don't see that they're looking into the image of God himself. Now, I want you to just keep this in mind as we look at sort of an astounding contrast to this idea in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 35. I would love for you to read along with me. It says, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, 
what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and following Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Jesus is traveling. He's getting close to the city of Jericho. And there's this commotion all around him, like there often was around Jesus. And here's this blind beggar by the roadside, hearing the noise. And and so he cries out to those around him, what's going on? He he can't see. And so he he entreats them, tell me, what's, what's going on? And whoever this informant is, person or group of people, I think maybe the text suggests it's a group of people, what do they say? Who do they say to the blind man is passing by? You can, you can say it out loud, verse 37. Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, but the blind man must have misunderstood. He must not only be blind, but also partially deaf. Because he doesn't cry out to Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out something completely different, doesn't he? What does he say? Jesus, son of David. Wow, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Again, this man must be totally confused because I think you guys know, who was Jesus' earthly father? Joseph, right? How come he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth? How come he doesn't say Jesus, son of Joseph? How come he says Jesus, son of David? What is it that this blind man sees that everybody else around him fails to see? How is it that you have a blind man who manages to see Jesus, son of David, when everybody else around Jesus misses the significance. Well, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles way back to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Maybe that's a a dusty old part of your Bible because we've been in Luke for years and so you haven't been reading back there. It's page 330. (laughs) That's obviously a joke because you probably have a different Bible than I do. But it's way back to the left, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what you have here is a prophecy that God through a prophet speaks to David, King David, roughly 1,000 years before this moment outside of the city of Jericho where the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 9. And I want you to skim along with me, but you'll have to skim because I'm going to cut a couple of uh, pieces of this out. Somebody texted me, what version of the Bible are you using? I like the ESV. I can explain that in person if you want to come and ask me why, I can tell you why. 2 Samuel verse seven, or chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This is God's promise to David. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I know I was skipping through some of that. I wanted to highlight some of those parts. What we have here is is an interesting occurrence in Scripture that happens quite often in the Old Testament, and it's this. 
God makes a promise to an individual with a double meaning, I would say. There's a meaning for the immediate future that's going to unfold very soon, and there's a prophetic meaning for God's long-term plan for redemption, salvation, His overarching theme for history. And if we look at this promise in the immediate context, what we see in verse 13 in particular, God says to David, you're going to have a son who's going to be king over Israel, and that son is going to build a house for God, a house for me. Well, if you know the story, David has a son. His name is Solomon. He has many sons, but Solomon ends up being the king after David. And Solomon builds what must have been one of the most magnificent buildings in all of the ancient world, a temple just splendid in glory, a house for God to dwell in among his people. But God's promise is so much greater than Solomon. It's so much greater than a temple just made out of stones. And God is making to a promise to David that he's going to have a son from his genealogy whose kingdom will last forever, who will build an everlasting home for God, for God's glory to dwell in, a temple not made with hands. But here's what's interesting. If you continue to read through the Old Testament books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you find that not too long after David dies, his family loses the throne of Israel. And it seems that God has failed to keep his promises. Here's the God of the universe making a promise to David that only a few generations later seems to vanish into thin air. That's a huge problem, or so it would seem. Because if you trace the lineage of David and you keep going down through the generations like Luke does at the beginning of his gospel or Matthew does at the beginning of his gospel, a thousand years later, eventually, you get to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of David, the true son of the promise that God made to David that David would have an heir, a son, whose kingdom would last forever, who would build a house for God's glory to dwell in that would never be destroyed. Okay, now, I'm going to put this passage up on the screen just so that I don't make you confused running all over the Bible this morning. John chapter 2, when Jesus is questioned by the religious leaders, uh, they grill him and they say, "You're, you're saying and doing all these things. Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? to do these things, and they question him. And this is how Jesus answers in in typical sort of cryptic fashion. He says this, destroy this temple, and he's standing near the temple, the very one that Solomon built, it had been rebuilt, but that very same temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, being shocked, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Who do you think you are? You're going to raise it up in three days? But verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, I realize I'm a little scattered. I'm a little bit all over the place this morning. But I want you to see the amazing thing that the blind man sees. Although he is blind with his eyes, he sees with his heart and soul a truth so profound. And yet, all these people around him in the crowd seem to utterly miss it. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David, the Savior. He sees in Jesus the promise fulfilled to David, the Son of God, now 
living among men, walking on earth. The one to whom David had been promised would come. And see, the temple built by Solomon with stone, Solomon the son of David, was later destroyed and then rebuilt and destroyed, and it went through that cycle several times. And every time it was torn down, the rocks were, were destroyed or the, the, the treasures inside were emptied. It took a monumental effort of men, sometimes decades, in this case they're talking about 46 years, to rebuild this temple. So that as Jesus now stands in John 2 near the temple built by Solomon, Jesus says, I'm going to do something great. I'm going to remake this temple in three days. But you need to understand, he's not talking about the temple made of stone as the fulfillment that, of the promise that God made to David. He's talking about the temple of his own flesh and blood. And out of his flesh and blood then, he's talking about you and I and the church and every person who has placed their faith in Christ Jesus throughout history in every place of the globe. Think about this. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are the temple that God promised to David, which Jesus built with his own body and blood. Christ is God's temple, and Christ in you is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. That's why we can meet in a gym and we don't really care, because it's not about the building, it's about the hearts and lives of those who are in Christ. So in short, here's what I'm getting at. What the blind man sees without seeing is that Jesus, the son of David, is the fulfillment of God's promise that God would make for himself an everlasting kingdom with an eternal palace in which he would dwell, giving his glory to men, placing it among them. I mean, sharing his glory with them by being present with them. And so when God makes that promise to David, he's not ultimately talking about Solomon and the temple of stone. He's talking about the church. He's talking about you and I, the body of Christ, and Jesus, the Son of God, who descended from David, who is the true king of God's people. Now, there's two reasons why this is amazing, okay? This is why I'm doing all this work to get here. Why this guy is such an incredible example for us. Okay, first of all, Although we might say that the loss of his sight leaves him at a disadvantage, he's the only person around all the crowds who truly sees who Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? He's the only person in the whole gospel of Luke who sees that Jesus is the son of David. The only one who cries that out. And so he may be blind when it comes to his physical eyes, but he sees so clearly with his heart that Jesus is the son of David and the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. Man, as far as I know, nobody in this room is physically blind. But even if they were, frankly, I would say that's not really all that important, is it? What is important is ultimately not that you see with the eyes of your head, but that you see with the eyes of your heart that Christ Jesus is God. Because without that, you're blind. You're in a state of darkness, hopelessness. Second thing here is that here is a guy who has every right to doubt the promises of God, doesn't he? He's suffering under the weight of poverty. He's a beggar. He's blind. 
he's handicapped, he's disadvantaged. You know, the, the term that we would use a lot these days is victimized by the injustice of the world. And yet, he believes in the goodness of God despite all of those circumstances. I mean, if anyone has a right to shake their fist at God and say, how dare you? How dare you call yourself good when my life looks like this? To doubt the faithfulness of God or the validity of his promises. Here is that guy, the blind beggar, but instead we see a man who trusts in the faithfulness of God, connecting Jesus to this prophecy, this promise of long ago. A man who in spite of his low circumstances remembers God swore to David that he would make a promise, uh, that he would raise him up to have an eternal kingdom and a people of his own. And, God, uh, and this man sees in Jesus God's faithfulness to his people. Man, again, what a challenge to us. In spite of our circumstances, to have assurance in the steadfast faithfulness of God, regardless of how things might appear from our vantage point. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I go 24 hours without seeing the faithfulness of God, I begin to be tempted to think that he won't come through for me. And here's a guy, again, with every right to doubt, who yet believes that, God, that the God who spoke a thousand years ago will yet be faithful to do all that he said he would do. Now, we, we, we need to look at the response of Jesus, but I, I want to take a quick detour because I think that this is a good place to, to fight a heresy that is growing uh, in the world, uh, in our increasingly secular culture. The heresy is this. The Bible is not a, one book. The Bible is not a singular book with a singular author. Rather, the Bible is just a, a collection of different kind of random, disparate, crazy stories that were thrown together over the course of thousands of years to make a somewhat interesting story. Okay, people who hold this view, this is why this is important, they would say that it is absurd of me to say that the promise that God made to David a thousand years ago is now being fulfilled in Jesus and that this blind man sees that promise coming to fruition. They would say, I'm crazy. They would say, you can't connect Samuel to Luke at all. There's, there's no connection, Okay. Uh, they would say someone kind of edited the whole thing to make an, an, an intriguing story out of it, but we shouldn't think that there's a real continuity to the Bible or an overarching story, okay? This is just, I would say, one more attempt to undermine the authority of God's Word, and it's tragic. Uh, I want to show you this book. This book came out last year. Throw this up on there for me. Uh, you can get it all over the place by a guy named Rob Bell. And look at this. Do you see what he does here? What is the Bible? He thinks he's going to answer that question, and how is he going to answer it? He says how an ancient library, an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. Now, I would say if you want to read a crummy book, pick this one up. Uh, I don't think it should have ever been published because I think it has a lot of dishonesty in it. But do you see the subtle undermining of what I'm trying to tell you in the subtitle? If you go to a library, should you expect at the library that the Dr. Seuss books will have anything to do with the John Gresham books? If you go to a library, should you expect that in the poetry section, you're also going to find some things that connect really intricately with the history section? 
I would say no, right? You go to a library because a library is a place where you keep a bunch of different books about a bunch of random different things that really might have something or nothing to do with one another. The Bible is not a library of books. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Bible is one book. It's authored by God himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the hands of a number of different people throughout thousands of years of history. That is true. And we believe as Christians that God is the divine author of this book. The reason why this is important is because that gives us the ability to say the promise made to David is being fulfilled in Jesus and the blind man in Luke 18 sees that as true. God established the connection. God intends for us to see the connection so that we might give him praise and glory and say, what God is like our God who over a thousand years of history is faithful to his promises. I want to show you something truly incredible. Uh, A few years ago, a couple of guys uh, put a graphic to the interconnection of the Bible. Okay, They, They mapped the interconnectivity of the Bible, and this is the image that comes from it. Take a look at this. I hope you can see this. I realize our projector is a little bit crummy. What you have here is on the bottom, these are all of the chapters of the Bible, and the lines are all of the ways in which the chapters are connected. The different colors uh, are, are, represent whether they're close connections. So like, you know, this is Genesis, this is Revelation. So you have the big orange line at the top that shows how they're connected. This is incredible. They found that the Bible cross-references itself 63,000 times. Uh, I'm actually skeptical that number's low. I just haven't had time to go through and count myself yet. So I'm going to... I'm going to settle with their conclusion for now. I just put the, I, let me just put this in perspective. The Bible has 1,189 chapters in it. So to be connected 63,000 times, every single chapter has to be referenced somewhere else 53 times in order to achieve that. Now, some are referenced more than others, so that's just sort of a, an average. That is amazing. That is truly mind-boggling, and scholars who have looked at this information are baffled by it because no other book in history comes even close. If you were to take all of Shakespeare's works, you wouldn't even find probably 1% of this in the interconnectivity, the continuity. There's a secular philosopher who's sort of uh, grabbed my attention recently named Jordan Peterson, Personally, I think he's probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever listened to. Not a Christian, he's secular. And and looking at this data, here's what he says. I have his quote. Throw that up there for me. He looks at this, and he, he has a very high value for the Bible, but he doesn't believe it. But he looks at this and he says, it's a funny thing that the Bible has a story because it wasn't written as a book. It was assembled from a whole bunch of different books. There's the library thing, right? He holds that view. And the fact that it got assembled into something resembling a story is quite remarkable. He's blown away by it because he, doesn't, he, he thinks it's like a library. He says the fact that it's this interconnected is nonsensical. It, it, it's impossible as far as he's concerned. He doesn't see the hand of God behind the story of the Bible, and yet he sees that the Bible is a truly incredible work of literature like no other work of literature. Do you see He sees, and yet he's blind. 
he's looking right at that collection of dots that I put up on the screen for you at the beginning of my message, but he doesn't see the 74. And so you might hear people say, and I, I think I hear this pretty frequently, the Bible is full of contradictions, as if that's like the nail in the coffin that it can't be trusted. Put that, put that yes, that's the one I want. Keep that up there. After seeing this graphic of the arcs, the interconnectivity of Scripture, how come nobody is exclaiming, the Bible is so in, incredibly interconnected? All they want to say is that there's contradictions. Uh, I don't think that the Bible has any contradictions whatsoever. I, I think if you brought me one, I could easily work to overcome it with you. There is no other book like this. But you don't hear people walking around going, I'm blown away. What, what they want to do is they reference like the tiny little thing that seems difficult to reconcile. Nobody's saying, look at how amazing this book is. Now, as far as modern secular scholars are concerned, they reject this information wholesale because in their minds they have uh, preconceived notions, presuppositions that won't allow them to even engage with it. It is impossible in their minds that a book can have this kind of consistent, non-contradictory interconnectivity when it was penned by more than 40 different people over 1,500 years. I would say it's divine. That's the only possible answer to that problem. So my point here is only this. I want to inform you because I love you. you know, my, my friends, my family the sheep of my fold, people that for whatever reason God has entrusted into my care to make sure that you're capable to discern the truth from a lie. There are lots of deceptions out there that seem credible upon first glance, but when you begin to look a little bit deeper, I want you to see that the Bible is true. There's nothing like it. Only God could author a book as beautiful, complex, and full of truth and wisdom as the Bible is. Any other explanation is just blindness to the facts. And if God authored it, which he did, then like the blind man in our story, we better believe that he will be faithful to the promises that he makes on its pages. And this is why we need to read it, to memorize it, to know it, to meditate on it, to live for it, to love it and hunger for it. Because through the word of God, we see... God. Okay, enough of that. I want to close with just three summarizing points, okay? I want to get, I, 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 want, I really wanted to take that detour, but I want to get back to Luke 18. Um, somebody's asking me, how would the blind man know about this term, son of David? Is this something everyone during this time would have known? That's a great question. I would say, uh, yes, in, a, in an oral tradition, they didn't have, most, most people didn't have access to a written Bible, and so they would have told stories about King David and God's promise to David that he would have a son and that that son would uh, restore the, God's kingdom to Israel. So yeah, that's a great question, but I would say yes, here's a guy who would have heard the story and rather than lay it aside, he believed it. Okay, I want to close with three thoughts, okay? First, I want you to see that Jesus never ignores a cry for mercy. That's so important that you know that. Jesus, in, in the midst of the crowd, the noise and the commotion, Jesus hears the desperate cries of this man, and he heeds them. 
I challenge you to find me one instance in any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where Jesus rejects a person who truly comes to him seeking mercy. I don't think that you'll find a single one. But how and why does Jesus do this? If you were to skip ahead to Luke chapter 22, I think you find the answer. I think this is incredible. I'm just going to summarize it. In Luke 22, Jesus is praying in the garden and he cries out to God, his Father. And the essence of his cry is, Father, have mercy on me. The the words that he uses are, Father, take this cup from me. But I think we could boil that down. And Jesus is looking to his Father and he says, Father, have mercy on me. Spare me from the suffering of the cross. And do you know what happens? How, do you know how God responds to Jesus' cry for mercy? He refuses. He says no. And do you see what this means for you as you cry out to mercy, for mercy to Jesus? Jesus took upon himself the rejection that you deserve in your cry for mercy, and therefore Jesus can now give mercy to all who cry out to him. And so this is beautiful. If you come to God and you plead to God the Father for mercy, you don't need to be afraid that he will reject your plea for mercy because Jesus took upon himself all of the rejection that God should give to you. Because Jesus bore your rejection before the Father, you will be heard by the Father. And this should cause our hearts to leap with joy and with peace. God will never fail to give his children mercy because Jesus, the Son of God, took all of man's rejection upon himself when he was crucified on the cross. That is beautiful because his cries for help were denied. Your cries for help will never be denied. Your cries for mercy at the hand of the Father will be heard. Second, I want you to see that Jesus heals blindness. Of course, in our story, he heals the man's physical blindness. And and Jesus can and still does do that kind of thing today, I believe. But I want to say that this is an illustration for something far greater. Jesus opens the eyes of the heart. He heals our spiritual blindness, which is a much bigger problem. Again, I think we need to ask how and why. How is it possible that Jesus does this? Well, if we were to flip to Matthew 27, again, I don't need you to go there. I'll summarize it. I think we find the answer. Get this. As Jesus hangs on the cross and is crucified and dies, he is spiritually blinded so that we can have the eyes of our hearts opened to see. Think about it. As Jesus slowly dies on the cross, he looks to the Father and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think another way you could state that is is like this. God, where are you? I look to you, but I don't see you. My eyes search for your face, but I only see darkness. And again, we find an incredible truth when it comes to the spiritual blindness that we have, and eyes to see. Jesus, for all eternity, was in a relationship with God the Father where they looked upon each other's faces constantly. 
Everything that he saw was the beauty of God the Father. Every moment his heart was connected to the Father. And now, in this moment on the cross, as he dies for your sins, Jesus looks to the one who he has always looked to, and what does he see? Nothing. As he hangs on the cross to suffer and die for your sins, he's blinded, unable to see the beautiful face of his precious Father. And because he took that experience upon himself for your sake, because he became blind to see the face of the Father, and because he rose from the grave, he has now overcome all spiritual blindness. We are now set free to see in the face of Jesus, the face of God the Father. Christ became blind so that we in our hearts could see the glory of God. How beautiful is that? And so I want to say to you, stop stumbling around in darkness and look to Jesus with the eyes of your heart. They're now opened through what he has done for you. And once he opens them and you see him never stop looking upon his face. And I think that's a good transition to the final thing. I want you to see how this blind man responds when his eyes are opened. Luke 18, 43. It says, And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. This is the only right response to having your eyes be opened, to receiving the mercy of God, is to follow Christ and glorify God. When Jesus opens your eyes and you finally see the glory of God, the only thing left for you to do is to chase that with every fiber of your being, to seek his face and to give him glory. Truly, nothing else matters anymore. Nothing else has any significance. Uh, I, 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 I really feel bad. I feel like I owe you an apology because I thought long and hard, how do I illustrate this? And I couldn't, I'm just not creative enough to think of a way, so forgive me. All I can do is appeal to those of you who have seen the beauty of Jesus and say, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. In the beauty of the face of Christ, you see something so compelling that you are inextricably bound to make your whole life a life of praise to him because nothing else matters. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then let me try and appeal to the negative since I can't describe it to you in positive terms. The purpose that your life lacks, that haunting feeling of emptiness, that hopelessness that lurks behind the years as they slowly drip away, the joylessness that life tempts you to feel, all of that dissipates in the light of Christ. It dissolves in the glory of the face of Jesus. It all finds resolution and satisfaction in this all-consuming purpose to pursue Jesus because he has opened your eyes and lavished his mercy upon you. And so if you want a compelling mission for your life, here it is. In such simple terms that even a child can grasp it, give glory to God for Christ Jesus. That's what you were created to do. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, if there's any people in this room who've been afraid to cry to mercy, cry to you for mercy, I pray that you would soften their hearts and they would cry out to you this morning. We thank you that because your son was forsaken at the cross and received no mercy, that we have been given mercy. Lord, if there are any of us this morning whose eyes of our hearts are blinded, would you open our eyes, we pray. And for those of us who know the compelling beauty of Jesus and, and maybe have let our eyes wander off to something else, Lord, would you draw our gaze back to you? Would you let us see like this blind man sees? We thank you for your faithfulness for the mercy that you give us. We thank you that you open the eyes of the blind. We thank you that you have given us your word and you have watched over its existence every day of history so that we might have it preserved, that we might know you, that we might see you. And Lord, we turn our hearts, our, our, our eyes, our minds, our, our mouths, our words to you in worship now, in praise, because you are glorious. Amen.